Hi, I'm Garrett, and welcome to The Conversation. I think conversation is one of the most important tools we have for building and maintaining genuine relationships. In the age of the internet and social media, the conversation is a dying art. While we're technically more connected than ever, it seems more difficult than ever to engage with alternative perspectives in a meaningful way. We talk past each other and speak totally different languages without even knowing it. This show is my attempt at working on that problem. I want to learn how to listen better and speak better. I'm trying to learn how to have meaningful conversation and practice what I learn. It's partly an experiment. Maybe if I start having more difficult conversations, I can get better at it. Maybe we can all get better at it. I don't know for sure how it's going to work out, but hey, this could be interesting. Hey, Garrett, good to see you. <laughs> <laughs> good to see you, you too. Ask me how I was feeling. I'm feeling, I'm feeling COVID weird. COVID weird. I'm, I'm realizing that, I mean, there's whole days when I wake up and I turn on the computer, start my work, and then it's 7 o'clock at night, and I haven't left the front door. And I haven't really spoken to another human being, like in person, for the whole day. Yeah. I think a lot of people are having these days. It's, it's well, very it, strange. It makes you... I, I was noticing the other day, I was talking with, with a couple other friends, and we were just saying, like sitting down and having a conversation with somebody after having so many days of doing nothing. It's like, I don't know, I compared it to being in a desert and then try, finally having a glass of water. And it's like, it's such a normal thing, wow. but it's like, it's so, I love water. <laughs> I know. Well, this is it. I mean, even now, just talking to you, I, I, my, my inclination is that if I have to go to the bathroom, I hit the mute button. <laughs> you know, just hang on. I'm going to mute you until I can get, get back here. Yeah. Do a bunch of things in, in a totally unintuitive way. Exactly. I feel like if I if I stand up, I want to turn off the camera. So I've had that I can, before, you know. Where I th I think I remember when I was like in high school or something, I was making some some like doing some video editing or something, and I dropped some pencils and I tried to press Control Z to undo. <laughs> oh, that's right. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, Whoop, come back to your hand. Doesn't work. But anyway, last week you told me to read a book. I started reading a little bit. Mm. I've read a little bit of it. And I Which one to... did you get to? Well, you said to start with the Mark Knoll book. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. Mark Knoll. So, He's kind of the biggie in I made know, some evangelical progress in history, especially. It's kind of a heavy read. Yeah, I mean, he's an academic, right? I, I, I mean, he's like, accessible, but... Yeah, I, I don't mean like from that perspective. I just mean like as being sort of the crowd that he's critiquing. Well, I mean, like... to hear him talk about it, this was like 30 years in the making where, you know, yeah. he was he was raised Dutch Reform in northern Michigan, I think. And uh, he became a really well-known academic working at Wheaton. But by the early 90s, he just sort of had had enough with the whole culture war crap. And he wrote this book and he got an awful lot of flack, as you might imagine. Yeah, right? I was I mean, wondering how the community you know, had responded to it. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, they didn't... Well, I mean, he was so respected hmm. that very few people could actually criticize him on the basis of either his faith, which was demonstrated, or his intellect, which was patent. And it was a, but they essentially called him a culture traitor. You know, they said traitor. that they said that he'd gone over to the other side mm -hmm. and that he was sort of, you know, yeah. well, airing dirty laundry in public and that sort of thing. 
but it's not it doesn't even sound like it's written to the, like it's not written to the public and it's like that's one no. thing I, I liked about i mean even you mentioned this when you recommended it that it's like it's written from the inside to the inside like it's not yeah it's not just somebody pointing fingers and saying hey you guys suck well he's basically saying to evangelical thought mm -hmm. leaders you guys should know better right and you know we can't expect everybody out there to you know to to have to be an academic but the people who are pretending to think for this community you guys should do better right you know because there's just a lot of sloppy thinking well i had as i was i w went for a walk the other day and i was listening to this book on audiobook and i had like i don't know i wanted to call it a vision because i'm trying to to, to re uh, redeem a little bit of uh, evangelical language a little bit because i don't know i mean i, I guess what i mean by that is just like whenever you have a picture show up in your head that kind of just makes sense of all. Do you want to just say of... the name of the book we're talking about? Just oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's called The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind. By Mark Knoll. By Mark yeah. Knoll, yeah. And basically he says that evangelicals have not used their brains for the last 200 years. Well, that's probably <laughs> overstating. I think he basically he literally says, says 200 years. Yeah, and I he mean, says evangelicals don't think. There's a tendency to magical thinking in the culture. <laughs> yeah, sure. All right, let's... Yes. But, well... As I was reading that and, and feeling that sense of like, I mean, because it, it did resonate with me. I was like, I, I don't really feel like evangelicalism is attempting to take academia seriously. And I mean, I don't know how qualified I am even to make that that statement, but it seems like he's qualified and, and, and his story is making sense to me. And it was, but it was making me think about some other issues too. I, I kind of had just this picture. So let me, let me tell you my vision, okay? <laughs> I had, I, I saw kind of like, it was like a map of like all land masses and it was like they all started to puddle up into smaller land masses that kind of reached really really high into the sky so they stopped being countries and became these like basically islands but like towers so like they were reaching really high but no longer connected to each other and to me it was sort of like this tower of babel kind of image of like well, I guess I just kind of related it back to like all the institutions of right now, and including Christianity. It's like there's a sense of self-obsession and ignoring all of the all of the rest of the world and what the rest of the world has to offer. I I think that's a problem that you know evangelicals oh, yeah. are struggling with. Well, but I, I think mean, that's I think a lot of people call that to use your image literally is it's often called siloing. So, yeah. You know okay. I mean? Yeah. People get into their own silos and right. then you know, you end up developing your own little language and your own little set of references and your own little set right. of right and wrong. And then when you step out of your silo, you know, everybody else seems crazy. Well, that... But then you do too because you can't actually communicate with anybody else because you only talk your own little language. And what I love about that is that, like, that exactly makes sense of the whole Tower of Babel story. <laughs> I guess it would. That's I never like, thought like, about that's that. That's precisely what it is. It's, it's becoming self-obsessed with an ideology to the point that well, for one thing, yeah, every, everything just starts to collapse after a certain point, and then you try and talk with anybody, and nobody speaks the same language anymore. Yes, and there's also that Tower of Babel thing is that, of, I would say often the impetus when you are in a silo is to develop a more and more, in your mind, truthful way of speaking. Like Tower of Babel was to try to recover the language of Adam. It was, it was to try to sort of build a tower to God. Right. You know? And, and, you know, and God destroyed the unity of language to prevent that. But you get a sense with these silos that people 
people inside the silo feel like they're achieving more and more purified forms of truth. Right. And then when they but step then, out, everybody else just seems crazier. And everybody from the outside to, like anybody who's sort of a more integrated thinker who who's kind of following a little bit of what's going on within that silo and a few others can like immediately call the bullshit of like, that just, that doesn't make sense. You're so, you're so self-obsessed and you're so stuck in your own little bubble that it, none of this is making any sense. Yeah, I mean... It's the problem of jargon, which is as soon as you get yeah. a, a group which is really comfortable speaking with each other, their conversations start to get into shorthand. Right. And they start using shorthand with each other. So you get these little magic words that mean another magic word. But to anybody else, you know, it, it becomes well ta tautological. In other words, it becomes, right. you know, a tautology is like saying, well, what's a bachelor? Yeah. Well, a bachelor is an unmarried man. Well, what's an unmarried man? Well, it's a bachelor. You know what I mean? They don't actually mean anything outside of the fact that the two words talk to each other. Right. And you you have that weird sense with jargon that it's just a bunch of... A bunch well, I mean, of, jar jargon has a pretty negative connotation that it's just like, it's, it's like nonsense, basically, right? Well, it's meaningful to the people who are people, in the group. Because right, it is useful for that. But outside of the group, it's just blah, blah, blah. Yeah. You know, it's... Which is... I don't know. I, I started like when I had that picture of, oh, it's Babel. And then I did like a little Googling and realized that that's the only reason that we have the word Babel, like for somebody babbling on yeah, is just exactly. a reference to that story too. And, and even the name of the place like Babel and then Babylon is just like same, same meaning, just a, let's see, a confusion of sounds or of voices. Interesting. So probably the, the myth is very, you know, it's very mythical in that sense that it's just like the place is the the theme of the story. <laughs> hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. But I get, okay. So I got there because I I think this is the quote that I was looking at. So I'm going to read a couple quotes to you real quick. So this is the, this is the quote from the evangelical mind book. It said the very few who decide to make the integration of Christianity and scholarship, a lifelong calling usually do so at their own initiative with precious little encouragement, either from the church or the academy. Ironically, the handful who do express an early interest in the vocation of Christian scholar are usually shunted into seminary for graduate theological study, producing a surplus of those qualified to teach religion, but a paucity of those trained in the other 95 of the other 95 percent of the academic disciplines as they relate to Christian faith. And like, I don't know, when I read that, it, it kind of makes sense to some extent, like, are you going to expect somebody who's a biologist to spend a certain amount of time learning about how all of the other disciplines relate to biology. To some extent, I don't know, maybe I'm just kind of going off the cuff here, but like, I, I think that's what you're supposed to do when you, when you get into like kind of later science and stuff like that, that there has to be some interplay between these studies. But I don't know, the, the more an institution kind of gets self-obsessed, it, it, it stops having that, where I'm going I guess I guess I'm just seeing that pattern in a couple of places so I'm seeing I, I definitely saw it in Christianity and I think that the case this guy is making it's really resonating with me but I feel like that sense of judging everybody else's everything by your own little internal standard of like I mean for Christians is like well does it line up with my interpretation of the Bible that it doesn't work very well and it, it it's not a good, very good evaluation of other schools of thought. Yeah, and I mean, I think 
you put your finger on is that I think that quote suggests that he's lamenting that Christian scholarship has become just another discipline instead of a worldview which informs right. all disciplines. Yeah, that, you know exactly. I mean? So that, that's the point is that it's <clears throat> supposed to be, it's not supposed to be a discipline or like a, a, a school subject. It's supposed to be a worldview, yeah. which should include a view of the entire world. Yes. But I mean, even in, say, his discipline, which is history, he's had a lot of, he's had a lot of, you know, struggle because he produces very rigorously researched history. In other words, he's produced, uh, you know, a 500-page history of Pro Protestant Christianity in the United States. He's produced about 20 books. Okay. And they're detailed and footnoted, and, and, you know, they sort of lay out a really detailed record of, here's how Christianity developed and changed and formed and moved and influenced people and did things in the States, which is fantastic. And in Canada, too. He's written some stuff on Canada. But... Other people, for example, that he's had a lot of trouble with are, for example, are you familiar with the movement called the Wall Builders? No. They're, um, they're a group that was set up to provide textbooks for Christian homeschoolers. Okay. So they, they produced versions of American history that they called providential history, which was, you know, a kind of really sloppily done rewrite of the main points of American history only pulling up sort of it's weirdly twisted for, you know, all of American history is pointing to this moment of evangelical culture kind right. of thing. Leaving out all of the complications, leaving out all of the sort of other things that were going on and leaving out all of the sort of nuance. And, you know, Mark Knowles criticized this kind of stuff. He's saying, this isn't, you know, this is useful for you guys. Right. But well, it's not history. It's, yeah, it's you useful know, for I mean, having like a story and, yeah. and to have like a good, because I mean, that, that's all, especially for, for people who aren't trying to be, you know, intellectuals who are just trying to live life. They need to have some sort of framework to kind of place themselves in and say, this is what we're trying to do with existence. And mm -hmm. like, you know, it, that's a sense, like, I think everybody needs that to some extent. Yes. And so we all, we always create a story like that. And they're always, I think just most of us are not willing to, I mean, I think this is true of my own worldview too. It's like the stories that I, I tell about myself and reality, I know they're wrong. And I, I don't think everybody necessarily has that sense, but like, I think we should understand that this is like a simplified telling of the story. Yeah. So that way we it's can a, It's a representation. Right. You know, any representation, even if it accurately represents things that did happen, necessarily has to leave out a lot of things that also happened and your choice of what to leave in and what to leave out, even though you're telling the truth, your representation is going to reflect your filter. Right. And that's, you can't get away from right. that. You can't, this is, you can't get the whole truth in a story because at any given time, there's a million things happening and a story has to draw a plot line through one stream through them. Right. So you can, you can be true even while you're, not telling the whole truth, but you can also be false even while you're telling the truth just by not, by drawing the line right. through different things. Was this where, so Evan was taking, with, with your class last <laughs> semester, we started having a bunch of conversations about this, at, about like the idea of how to read literature. Right. Which it seems like this is kind of where you're headed is like the idea that, you know, whenever you're reading a story, 
you're reading more about, you know, that person's lens that they're viewing the world through than you're learning about the actual history. Yeah. I mean, to some extent. Yeah. I mean, what I spent the last few days doing is, um, is germane to this because I've been, I've been working with a group of people at the university from 10 or 12 different disciplines to try to develop an online course looking at the COVID pandemic from 10 different perspectives. And so some of them are virologists and some of them are epidemiologists and some of them are political scientists and what have you. But the thing they gave me is they said, how does the stories people tell about this pandemic influence the way they understand it and influence the way that they behave and react to it? Right? Because you look at it and right. you say, it's just a virus that makes people sick. How can people have such different interpretations of it? Right. I mean, it's literally just a bug that makes you sick. Yeah. And how can people believe such different things? So, I mean, there's a concept that's pretty well accepted now in psychology that's called narrative identity. And it's this idea that, that as creatures, human beings, the most basic level of cognition is narrative. In other words, we think by putting a, an eye into a story of past, present, and future mm -hmm. in relation to other agents. So we think at a fundamental level in terms of stories. And stories are really good for getting people to do things, for letting you organize the way that you think about what you want to do. But the problem with stories is they have kind of limitations. And one of it is that, I mean, you take plot. Plot is a sequence of events over time. But the problem with plot is that it picks out one line. Right. Whereas at any given time, there's 20 things happening. Right. To make a story of yourself, you necessarily have to ignore 90% of what happened in your day. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, oh dear, what happened to you today? And you'll tell me a little story, right? right? But, you know, you left out all the times, hopefully you left out all the times like, you went to the really, bathroom when or you're asking breakfast. that question. You just yeah. want to hear something interesting exactly. about my day. And so I just and try so to you think draw about, a line from one event this, to another. How yeah. can I make my day interesting? How can I tell well, a story? That's right. About and it? and then, you know, there may even be an imputation of causality, which is there's the suggestion that this event caused that event to happen, which is really good for creatures thinking about how to act right. in the world, but often causality in the real world is a lot more complicated. Like but I so, mean So the the opposite though, or like the the other side of, end of the spectrum for how to communicate anything is like maybe Maybe we'll want to call it data. Yeah, like a scientific right. table or something. But that similarly has just the same problem, but just sort of inverted. Well, yeah. I mean, when I see a table, my I, I get crossed eyes. My I just get, I want to run away. Well, not I don't know that, what all these numbers mean. But Somebody tell me a story to make a, sense a of it. A table, well, yeah, so you have to use a story you know? to make sense of it. But a table is going to be focused on a selected, another selected set of variables that are exactly. supposedly, you exactly. know, should be the things that we're well, this is concerned it. with. And with a scientific table, you can drill down and say, okay, what were your algorithms? What were your instruments? Mm -hmm. What was your data set? With a story, you can't say, what criteria did you use to select the events that you told me about right. with your day? Because you it's, it's your, intuitive. It's totally right. intuitive. It's like, I don't know. I just told you what was important. You know, right. you, you don't do that. So it's not accessible to but, thought in the same way that like a scientific table is. There's, I mean, there's a sense of though, like, okay, so a scientific table, I can't speak to it super technically, but. <laughs> I know, I don't even think that's the real word. <laughs> but, but yeah, okay, a table of data. Let's just leave it there. Yeah. That's a more general. 
as, as soon as you're making a table of data, so he said one problem with that is that you still have to tell a story about it in order to get any meaning out of it anyways. Presumably. I mean, even even as somebody who knows the data very well, you just might be able to have a little bit better of a sense of direction when plotting that story through the data. Well, when I look at a table, I can look at it, and then I immediately want to look at the person who gave it to me and say, what do you want me to take away from this? Right. What do you want me to do with this? And that's when they say, okay, see that? See, there's a correlation mm -hmm. between this and that. Okay. There's a correlation between closing your eyes and walking across the road and getting hit by a car. Open your eyes when you cross the road. Yeah. Safer. Right. You know, so that, it, that's a good story thing. there. Yeah. But I don't know. There's a couple different things that I, I want to try and bring together about this. So, yeah. So, so one thing is, is when it comes to tables, and I want to kind of extrapolate that to say, like, when you start, like, a scientific table, you know, <laughs> I know. We need to stop using that word. But any, any sort of set of data, data a, data set. a yeah. data set associated with a type of science or a type, a, a practice of, of thinking is linked to whatever, you know, whatever the variables are that that, that, that practice is concerned with. Right. Yes. And so, do in terms of like throwing that back at, at evangelicalism, it's like everything the, the data set or the, or the little plot points, the reference points that everything is considered in terms of, is you know almost always the apocalypse and the return oh. of Jesus, right? Or like th there's this, you know, everything gets viewed through this one one metric, and it gives us a really faulty view of the world and and leads people to do some kind of nutty things like i mean you sent me that article too about some of the some of the people who were part of the insurrection uh in the oh, states the recently. january 6th thing here right uh like there there was a lot of evangelicals there apparently who like thought that that was had something to do with or like they needed to go and fight the good fight and and, and prevent the antichrist from taking over or something like that it's yeah. like that's obviously a, a story that they can plug themselves into but it's like if if there was some integration of some other disciplines, some other types of critical thinking, and some other understanding of what was going on within the Christian community, we could probably maybe see past... I, I mean, to all the Christians out there who, who agree with that narrative, may, maybe you're right. I don't think you are. But, like, it seems that a more integrated type of thinking, as in, like, integrated meaning not just obsessed with this one metric of viewing everything. So I, I've been trying to coin a term, a coin a phrase lately. I want to say that unimetric is a word. <laughs> Hit me with that. <laughs> that should mean, or it's like a way of processing the world through one metric, through one variable. That's the dream, isn't it? Well, I mean, that that seems to be... Or what, the nightmare, whatever. Yeah, I, I, I think it's definitely a nightmare. It's 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 both. It's a dream and a nightmare because people seem to to, to want to rely on that, want to have, you know, one little thing that they can kind of look at and say, I mean, that's sort of <clears throat> what good and evil is too. It's like, it's just our way of being able to say, well, this is good and this is bad and, and we can kind of arrange the whole world in terms of that little simple binary. Yeah. But I mean, almost every piece of literature in the history of stories plays with that concept because we don't really know what's good and what's evil mm. right and so so every time we have we, we try to distill the whole world down to one simple metric we get screwed up yeah and well i, I guess where i see that going is like that that's the tower thing mm. i don't know if, if that's going to connect for everybody but like the, the idea that like that's 
Yeah, it's like that's becoming that's stacking everything on one rule, on sure. one little one worldview, one little little metric for viewing everything through, and it's like that's a disconnected and unstable world. It's one that's going to fall yeah. down and lead to a place of of babble, of babbling and of jargon. Well, or else it's a world that is incredibly narrow and intolerant. I mean, right? Because once you get, I mean, this is why. This is why in almost all of American history, most Christians have not wanted a theocracy because they don't, they don't really trust that a bunch of people, if, gov- if given all this power, and then also believing that they're blessed by the Lord to govern, aren't going to make a state that's simply in the name of the Lord, but actually in the reflection of their own desires. And hang-ups and you know because the fact is is that you can find almost anything in scripture to justify just about anything you want to do right yeah and if you give people an awful lot of power to speak in the lord's name to interpret scripture they can make a very pure society but there's going to be an awful lot of things left out right i mean half of dystopian science fiction is the idea of a very good person or a good people taking power and then taking their good ideas to a kind of totalitarian extent. Right. At which point it becomes a nightmare for most people who aren't in the club, you know? Have you read, um, I think you told me that you, you haven't spent a lot of time with the Russian guys, but, um, I started trying to read through the brothers Karamazov last year. Yes. No, I've never got through it. Okay. Well, you don't need to get through it to get to, there's a really good part that I would, Okay. I would recommend reading. It's like kind of is it right, near the beginning? <laughs> it, no, it's right in the middle. You have to go flip through and find oh, it. Oh man! But it's it's kind of a standalone story, though. It's like <clears throat> there's like a it's it's almost like it seems disconnected from the rest of the story. It's like mm-hmm. it's just briefly we go in here and one of the characters tells the other character a story, and but the cool thing about the story though is is it kind of that's the little microcosm of the whole story that you could kind of use to it's the, it's the rubric to unpack the whole story and and mm. figure out what it means. I think, anyways, that's that's the impression I'm getting from what I was picking up from that story. But that let me let me tell you that story, anyways. So, well, in the book, anyways, there's a, it's about a family. There's this guy Fyodor, and he has th- three sons, three sons that like are known to be sons, and he has one ec- extra kind of black sheep son that, that nobody's really sure if, if he's his son or not. Anyways, the three main characters, well, no, there's two important main characters, anyways. There's Alyosha. And he's the good one, right? He's the good one. Yes, gotcha. And then there's Ivan, who's maybe the bad one, mm-hmm. right? I mean, it's kind of plays with that concept a little bit because, yeah, the, the, the simplest definition of those characters is that is Alyosha is the good one and Ivan is the bad one. But Ivan tells Alyosha this story and it really, really messes him up. And it's the story that's, that, I mean, again, this story covers what the whole book is about. So he tells him about this, like, and kind of sets it back uh, during the, um, what do you call the Crusades? And he says Jesus comes back early to kind of check on his saints. And, and this isn't his, like, second coming. This is just a little coming 1.5 <laughs> to come and, and see everybody and hang out and just encourage everybody. Checkup. Yeah, just a little checkup. And Alyosha's already frustrated at this point. He's like, Jesus didn't come back. He's like, okay, well, who knows whether or not this character is <laughs> really Jesus? Let's do the Jesus. what if, yeah. Yeah. 
So he gets in and, and he's kind of walking around and crowds are, are gathering behind him. And eventually the somebody high up in in the Catholic Church gets gets wind of this and they're actually kind of frustrated because it's like, who's this guy who's who's sort of pretending to be Jesus and walking around and gathering up crowds? He's going to make a big ruckus. So there's this guy, the, the Grand Inquisitor. <clears throat> he is the super old, I don't know what his position in the Catholic Church is, but we'll say he's a bishop or something, I don't know. But he locks the guy up in a prison cell and he goes to meet with him. And he has this whole conversation with him, basically accusing him. Like this guy actually thinks that this character is Jesus. Oh, okay. And he's frustrated with him. He's like, you can't come back. You, you left this in charge of us. And he's like, he goes through the whole like last three temptations, you know, in the desert that Jesus has before the passion story or during that. Um, and he kind of calls him out on some things that he's like frustrated at Jesus for doing. I don't remember how every single one of the temptations is, is interpreted, but at least one of the main ones was like, Jesus didn't make bread when, when Satan asks him to make bread. He says like to turn, turn these rocks into bread. And the, you know, this bishop or whatever, this inquisitor, he, he's like, the meaning he sees in that is that Jesus was not giving man an easy way out to like look to somebody who would provide bread for them. He wants man to, to go, at, if Jesus just like produces bread willy-nilly, then everybody doesn't have to kind of work for their own bread and, and, and struggle with reality and try to, to get what they need. And he kind of expands that into the other, it's, it's, Interesting. I wish I could I could remember a little bit better, but he basically just is frustrated at Jesus for giving humanity too much freedom. Yeah, yeah. He's saying, you know, this is not going to work. People people can't be trusted with this much freedom, and so we in the Catholic Church have decided to stop. You know, putting every putting this responsibility on everybody to figure out what's right and wrong. We're just going to tell them what's right and wrong. And we're going to forgive some of their sins and not make, not make them worry about that. We're just going to, we're going to let them do this. And we're going to let them do that. We're going to let things be simple for them because the complicated gauntlet that you've laid down and handed to us is way, way too much for, for us. And it's funny. At, 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 so the end of the story said so the, the Jesus character never speaks. So we don't even know if it, if it really is Jesus. Mm-hmm. But at the end of this long accusation that he's frustrated at Jesus for, uh, he just looks at him and he kisses him. Jesus kisses the Inquisitor. Jesus kisses the Inquisitor, yeah. And this, like, so that's the end of the story. And the Alyosha character, who's the, who's the good, like, you know, righteous church boy, he's really upset and frustrated by this story because he wants, you know, he wants there to be Rules a clap structure, back. yeah. Well, yeah, he, exa- exactly. So you see where it's going. It's like he's he feels the call out that this story is is doing to him, and basically he's saying, "Hey, you're naive. You're just kind of trusting in this whole structure, but you're not really wrestling with the problems of reality." In some sense, it's the same. You know, it's the same speech that that Mark Nall is giving the church. He's saying, "You guys are not taking up the burden of struggling with with reality and struggling with." you know how does this how do we actually unpack the world yeah right and that that was directly relevant to something we were just i mean that obviously that kind of expands on the main point but there was something i I wanted to tie that back to where were we a second ago you remember Mm. evan 
Uh, I've lost. Anyways, <laughs> but oh. that story, anyways, really. No, but I mean, I think you're. Me. I think you're right, which is. I think probably people could kind of criticize. I mean, <clears throat> from what I remember when I read this book, Noel was trying not to criticize ordinary believers. Right. Right. Because, I mean, the fact is, is that religion and spirituality play an important role in people's lives in terms of What's the story thing, organizing right? yeah the way that you live your life and you find meaning in your life and what have you and yes it may not always be doctrinally rigorous or theologically you know defensible but you know in every religious tradition there is a populist spirituality right which you know is going to have a little bit of magical thinking in there you know i mean but where you have a vertically integrated church like the catholic church you got your eggheads up here and then you got your priests in the middle sort of repeating what the eggheads say and then you have your little old ladies giving the evil eye to their neighbors down here you know and somehow they all hang together because right. there's a bunch of different modes the problem with the evangelical tradition is it, it tends to be that populist mode broke away from that those other forms so i mean the more traditional denominations of protestantism like anglicanism what have you they tend to retain that multi-layered thing where there's a sort of there's a populist charismatic form of it and then there's a kind of middle class mm -hmm. middle brow you know yeah, yeah, yeah. thing and then there's your sort of priestly seminary school thing and then you have some really interesting innovative thinkers doing things with theology which are pushing the boundaries right the problem with evangelicalism is it tends to have broken off that populist yeah. wing and and um so people have kind of accused Noel of taking a bit of a shot because yeah. you know populism never really pretends to be intellectually rigorous it's not really its thing but i think his point is that if you're going to pretend that you have all the answers mm -hmm. that's a kind of hubris itself yeah like i mean well that's in, what i want in a more integrated like... church you, you tend to have people higher up who are keeping right keeping the worst of the populist impulses reined in but, but sometimes do you think you that the people hear. sort of at the bottom need to be we shouldn't say it at the bottom like i mean at the bottom say... of that hierarchy anyways yes the hierarchy of like intellectual thinking it's like there's plenty of other games they're playing too, i would but say like... that people at the exuberant edge <laughs> <laughs> let's just say that because the fact is is that most religious traditions get all of their life and energy and joy and passion and what have you from the people who are living on the exuberant edge even if they're not always 100 doctrinally right correct, so I, I, or theologically when i say the bottom through, i don't mean that like yeah. they're the bottom in every no, regard it's it was my like, metaphor i shouldn't have, right. i shouldn't have put it that way but. well no I, i'm saying i i want to argue that that's okay that the bottom is okay because there's not just one game that everybody's playing yeah right so that they're at the bottom of that hierarchy there's other things that they're doing though that that they are you know they're either in the middle or they're at the top or whatever there's like Anyways, I, I, I don't think that, that we should be totally a, a against that sort of terminology. I think it, like it's like if you're speaking about a, a particular, you know, I, I mean, I, I want to call it a game that people are playing. If you're speaking about the game of like 
theological intellect or whatever. There are people who are really into that, and there's people who are at the edge of it, right? I guess you can measure the edge. Well, and there, then there's always the then there's always always the argument about what's more important, right? I mean, is it more important to have right thinking, you know, orthodox yeah. people all the time, or is it more important to have people who are going to bring joy and passion and create cultural forms like music and what have you? And, yeah. and then later on, 20 years later, that'll get codified into a, you know, an orthodoxy. Right. But well, so there know. obviously there's a sense of like the more you, I mean, I feel like I get this, this story from everybody who starts like studying something that there's like the more they learn, the more they realize they don't know anything. Mm. Like the, the humility comes along with, with the expertise. I think so. Or at least it should. I mean, sometimes you get totally the opposite result. But do you think that humility is important on the other end of the spectrum too is what I mean? Like, so with people who like just need to know enough about Christianity to kind of know what, how it should affect their everyday life and just like what they should do. Did they need to have the sense that they could be wrong about everything? Or like, are, like this is the question I've kind of struggled with, with even my roommate in college, we, we kind of talked about different things and like, I would want to ask, you know, just a random person in the church a question. And he was like, no, don't ask him that. That's going to like, that's going to mess them up for a whole week. And I was mm. like, who cares? It's, a, it's, it's like, we're looking for truth. I want to like have a, have a good conversation and figure this stuff out. And he was always like really concerned about that. And that I'm not, I don't know. Now I'm just kind of wrestling with, <laughs> do you let people sort of believe it? Like, I mean, do you let people be naive? Is, is there some place for naivety? I mean, I think there is only because, only because I wouldn't feel really qualified to tell somebody that the way they believe isn't right. But then I'm not in, I'm not a cleric. I'm not in the church. I'm not a, a clerical person whose job it is. You know, if you're a, a priest or even a pastor, your kind of job is to be the shepherd of your flock. If somebody's straying, well, you've got you to bring them in there. To a right? discipline that you are more of an expert at then. Like, do you, how do you want, you know, <clears throat> people who aren't, like, let, let's say it just comes to literature, people who, who don't, you know, aren't studying literature, but are just enjoying it. Right. How do you want them to, to approach it? How do you think is like the right way to approach it? Well, I mean, the funny thing is, is that when I'm acting as a scholar, I very rarely speak in my own voice. Right. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, there's this school of thought backed by this evidence. There's that school of thought backed by this evidence. And then if I do this critique over here and that critique, I can come to these kind of thinking. But the, the drawbacks of that would be this. You know what I mean? As a scholar, you talk in that very provisional way. But as a teacher, you kind of bury that. And what ultimately you want to give your students is a sense of joy, right? Is a sense of wow. You know, a sense of this stuff is... Is, is is incredible. You know, you want to inspire. But yes, that's not a particularly scholarly perspective. But I mean, when I'm in class, I try not to sort of profess, you know, to try to stand up there and act real smart and the sage on the stage sort of thing. I try to give my students a sense that I love this stuff for how much it makes me think about stuff. And how much it makes me feel about things. And then when I'm writing, you know, then I fall back into my incredibly boring sort of 
you know, there's this and there's this. And on the other hand, there's that. And then we could also think about this way. You know, it's, it's, it's mind numbingly boring. You know, I don't even like reading it myself, you know, but, and, and I used to teach where I used to think, well, I have to, I have to give my students all the various scholarly perspectives and everything and their eyes would glaze over mm-hmm. and you realize that you have to fudge a little bit and, and say, tell a story a little bit Exactly. More. This is what's amazing about this that we're looking at, even though it's really only one perspective on it. Right. I, you know. But so, okay. I mean, there, there's something else I wanted to talk about kind of general thinking versus specialized. Well, no, let's, let's go there for a second. So I, I, this, this, one more quote to read you, and this is a G.K. Chesterton quote. Oh, yeah. But um, just in terms of, I, I guess I'm still kind of trying to unpack that that sort of vision or just that picture, though, of like these siloing, the siloing of, and again, I, I want to apply this to more than just Christianity, but, well, this is another good application of it anyways. He says, so our civilization has decided and very justly decided that determining the guilt of or innocence of men is a thing that is too important to be trusted to trained men. It wishes for light upon that awful matter. It asks men who know no more law than I know, but who can feel the thing that I felt in that jury box. When it wants a library cataloged, or the solar system discovered, or any trifle of that kind, it uses up its specialists. But when it wishes anything to be done which is really serious, it collects twelve of the ordinary men standing around. The same thing was done, if I remember right, by the founder of Christianity. <laughs> kind of a fun little quip at the end, but... Yeah, no, I I like Chesterton. I mean, you know, I disagree with a lot of what he says, but he he's great at putting his finger on the exact point, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I, that just summed up... I mean, I don't know, it just really put some good words to that idea to me. for or Just like the idea that when we get sort of too professionalized too jargony we can't see the whole picture yeah you need to have you need to it's like you need to have that simple story that kind of sees all the different communities and and pulls them all together into something integrated well i mean and he always had a great faith in the common sense of common people (laughs) part of the problem that we're running into i think in contemporary society is that in Chesterton's day, that common sense came out of people living their experience and then talking with other people. Right. And then coming to a sense of what we as a community right. mean. But we don't do that now. Well, now, now that we have we, algorithms. Now do that, that we for have, us. yeah, these voluntary communities that are made up only of people who think like us, we've lost the common. Right. Now so we only like, have different I, I, I kinds think that's of sense, you know? Why that? that picture was so scary to me. It's just that it's like, it isn't just that some people are doing this. Everyone is becoming part of a, of a different silo. Yeah. And these towers are ready to crumble. Well, and I mean, social media is engineered to produce that effect. You know, it's, it's literally being built to create these little, you know, fragmented communities. Yeah. Cause that's how they monetize their, their structure. But in terms of, you know, you know, the idea of democracy based on the idea that a man of or a man or a person of common sense can sit down with another person of common sense and no matter what they do, disagree on, mm-hmm. they can talk it out and come to consensus. You know, that's the great Jeffersonian ideal of democracy. Jefferson, Tom, Thomas Jefferson? Yeah. You know, his idea is that 
the idea of being a yeoman farmer, you know, a, a small landowner working the land can meet together, talk about anything with anybody. And no matter what they believe separately, they'll, they'll come to a consensus because they have this common sense of working the land, work with my hand, mm-hmm. needing to balance the books at the end of the day, needing to feed my family. Yeah. You know, you have this like it's commonality. Like a, a, a new, smarter being emerges from these bunch of people that try to... <laughs> well, no, exactly. I mean, the idea was that any one person's eccentricities would get sanded down mm-hmm. by the weight of common sense, mm-hmm. you know, and ultimately then you'd come up with... But the other side of their eccentricity is that they're bringing something that maybe somebody, nobody else has, and so you have a more complete person making that decision. Well, and I mean, Jefferson also was very, you know, was very keen on wanting to preserve that, you know, where, for example, for example, I mean, the disestablishment clause in the American Constitution, the separation of church and state, was mostly put in there not to protect either the church from the state or the state from the church. It was to protect churches from each other. I mean, the worry mm. the worry was is that you would have a state like Boston before Confederation where you, you had a state church, like the Congregationalists, okay. forcing people like... I forget his name that started the Baptist thing, forcing him to leave the colony and go to Rhode Island so that he could have religious freedom to to practice, to worship in right. his own way. Or Virginia was an Anglican state church. So the whole idea of separation church and state was we're not going to have the state be able to tell people what they should believe, which means right. that other branches of Christianity are going to be just as free to believe as anybody else. Right. And Thomas Jefferson's famous dictum was... You know, somebody came to him and said, my neighbor believes crazy crap, mm-hmm. <laughs> insane stuff. He's nuts. And Thomas Jefferson basically said, and then the guy said, am I free to like, to, to, to call the authorities and like, you know, rein him in. Mm-hmm. Thomas Jefferson said, you know, if it doesn't pick your pocket or break your leg, it's not your business. You know, that's what he said, if it's not hurting you financially or physically, Right. He can worship the spaghetti monster. It's not right. your business, Interesting. you know. And you know there were other American founders who had much less liberal ideas about, you know, about religious freedom than Thomas Jefferson. But, but that the, was the basic idea, which is that America is going to be this place where nobody's going to tell anybody else what to believe, as long as they're not hurting you financially or physically, as long as they're not causing harm. You know. But it's a sense of that, that like, like as soon as you make a rule that nobody's allowed to tell anybody else what to believe, it, it, you can't take that rule for very, very long. It can make it maybe last 10 minutes because mm. as soon as you want to interact with somebody else, you, you start sort of having a, it's just that you don't want to have one, you don't want to have the state in charge of doing that. But like, as soon as you're talking yeah. to somebody, you're establishing, you know, what things you agree on and what things you don't and trying to come to some consensus and maybe sand down any of the little things that you might disagree on so that we can work together yes so yeah i mean i guess when it comes to i'm not sure how that connects to the harm thing but just like well i mean you're, you're always trying to convince other people to you think are. the same way as you and at, and at least in america you're technically free to do that as long as it doesn't involve the state 
which is, I mean, some of the, the great discussions about religious freedom in the United States right now, for example, certain Protestant churches want to preach against, let's say, homosexuality. That's fine. They're allowed to do that. Where it becomes tricky is, are they still allowed to claim their tax break, which is technically money that they don't have to pay the state, and that money that they're technically sort of getting from the state because they're mm -hmm. earning an income and not paying taxes on it, so technically right. it's kind of they're getting money from the state, sort yeah. of. Do they still have the right to, to, to you know, harm right. other people if, sure. you know? Or let's say a person from that church goes and is working in a, in a marriage office, and then they say, well, I'm not going to give you a marriage license because of my faith. Well, I mean, you can quit your job and stand outside and mm -hmm. hold up a sign saying homosexuality is evil. But can you still go in and do your job and then as, as a functionary of the state and then arguably cause harm to people? Right. That's where it gets tricky. I think it's tricky, but I think, I think we just need to kind of expand a little bit on what we mean by harm because I mean, yeah, that's that's sort of the line. It's like, oh, well, is, is it physical harm? Because, I mean, obviously not performing somebody's wedding because you don't, you know, if you're a certain kind of conservative Christian and you think that homosexuality is... I don't think is, it's performing a wedding. It's issuing the, issuing the, the issue, license. Okay, so, so, so there, there's in one, the, yeah. In, a, in, the, I mean, in I, the state. I've heard so many different versions of this conversation because, yeah. I mean, it, it obviously hit my circles pretty hard, this, yes. these conversations. And, like, okay, so that's I don't not, think anybody in the States ever said that every church has to marry everybody right. who claims that they want to get married. Well, I don't think anybody ever said that. It's a question of whether or not the state has to issue, you know, support for this, right. even if the person working for the state doesn't believe it. But the as soon as the state that was making calls about, and, and to some extent they have to, but as soon as they're making calls about what is harming people, yeah. right? I mean, that's, that's what every community is sort of trying to do. Every community has a slightly different story about what the things are that are evil what things are that are good and if you're creating things that are evil by that community's standards of of that story then you're harming other people right so i mean yeah. you can you can see physical harm and that's like an, we can maybe have a little line that we draw there and say well we're not allowed to do things that cause physical harm or take other people's money but i mean i guess you're just talking about there with with the state's money but that's like i don't know if that that line really works either because anytime anybody has any sort of benefit from the state or the state gives anybody any money that's taking part in a certain community's story about the world, which, you know, for some intensive purposes, we could call a religion. Yeah. Right. A re for a really broad definition of that word, I want to just say a religion is a community uh, story about the world. It's, it, it's sure. whenever a community can enter into a story about the world together. And that story obviously presumes a, a sense of, or a, a moral ethic, a moral hierarchy of this is good and this is evil. Yeah. Right. And so there's nobody who's, who's non-religious. No. And so you can't like, <laughs> but technically the state as far as possible should simply try to be as equitable in its administration of its services to everybody in the sense that we have this idea that if everybody is a person, then everybody should presume to be treated equally. And if, if the state's going to give me a marriage license and you a marriage license, why can't it give that person a marriage license? That's the thing, you know. And I agree. I mean, it, it's a moving target. You know, there's an awful... I mean, 50 years ago, 
you know, it was very difficult to get a divorce. Mm-hmm. In fact, one of the main sort of rallying cries that brought evangelicals out of the political wilderness where they'd, you know, they'd very much been sort of an mm-hmm. apolitical group before then. You know, they weren't a particularly politicized group. Was, um, you know, the, 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 legal, the liberalization of the marriage laws, mm-hmm. right? And then the sort of free divorce thing that was going on in the States. And I mean, that, that was something like that. But I, th- I think that, I, I, like I see the argument just going to like, who should be allowed to be tax exempt. What, do, we, do you know when like the whole idea of exempting certain institutions from tax, like is that, a, is that a, an American thing? Is that, I think, how long has that been so, part I'm of not, the way we do things? I'm not sure, but I think in the States it used to be Mostly because a lot of social services were delivered through the churches, so therefore, right, right, you know what I mean. Which, but so so now most social services are delivered through the government. I mean, I, maybe not most. Yeah, I don't know. But there's there's a large percentage, anyways. But there's there's no separation between the you know the government's church and state because the government still has to make calls about what they think is good in the world. That's true, but I mean, a government every couple of years has to be accountable to the people. But I mean, okay, I, I guess a, so a that church, just gets a church into this sort of right. I mean, that's the thing. I don't know if I, I obviously I can't speak for everybody. I'm getting a, a a sense in in my own community and also just certain people I'm paying attention to that like that sense of an election happening every couple of years and and making the government responsible to the people isn't really happening. Yeah. Well, I mean, especially for Protestant Christianity, I think it's been a really hard transition from being a majority religious framework to a minority religious framework. Because when you're a majority religious framework, you say, okay, fine, democracy is great. Because most of the time, democracy does what we want it to. Whereas when you move into a minority religious framework, most of the time democracy isn't going to totally align with what you want. Yeah, see, again, I'm not, I'm not really talking about Christians specifically feeling this. I mean, I don't think, I, I feel like there's a pretty thick disconnect between the institutions that are pumping out um, possible candidates that, that can be oh, voted in and the layperson. Yeah. I mean, that, that's a, obviously a much bigger and more difficult topic, but that's, again, that sort of siloing thing. It's, it's, yeah. there's, and one guy I really like to follow, um, Eric Weinstein has this little, he comes up with a lot of great little catchphrases, but he, he likes to call that the gated institutional narrative. Yeah. The gin. Yeah. That's so just this idea of like, you know, there's, there, there is no, any community that's sufficiently self-obsessed doesn't listen to any of the other communities. And you see that with, with the, with the scientific community there, there's a, a great story he has about a, a time his brother you know made a really important and dangerous discovery for partially the way uh, for the way a certain kind of science was being done certain kinds of tests for about toxicity and things that we would be using products we would be using and things we'd be putting in our bodies he made a really important discovery about that and basically tried to try to be taken seriously and the community just sweeps him under the rug yeah, and that, like, I mean, I could sort of see the reason why you'd want to do that. That's a really embarrassing. It's embarrassing to have to admit your mistakes. 
but that's supposed to be what you know democracy is about i think yeah it's about but like you even see that like like right now with donald trump is not not admitting that he's lost and it's like i don't i don't even have a hard position i feel like i can't i have no ability to tell whether or not he won or lost that election because i, I don't really trust the media at this point i feel like there, there's a there's a well, good disconnect if you between... believe that he lost you'd have to believe that there was a massive conspiracy that of he won all of the all of the republican governors and and you know in the entire republican establishment in all of the states that he lost all conspired independently you mean the republicans conspired to throw him you mean well no i mean georgia was a republican administered straight state i believe wisconsin is too like they yeah. the republican party ran the election in those states and you'd have to believe that in michigan in wisconsin in georgia there was a massive massive conspiracy of everybody not only on the other side but on your side too to somehow in a way that can't be detected by any judge or anybody else who's investigated that's ever found any evidence and yet has somehow managed to produce this illusory effect where the only evidence for it is the fact that the president has repeatedly said it and this right. is a guy who's lied 37,000 times on record that's the number in his thing so i mean it's like really i, mean, I, I, mean, I can the, see the a number getting that high is is astounding like i i'm no fan of donald trump but there's something there's something that made me sad about seeing him lose and oh. i guess it was i don't know i i I think this frustration, though, about about feeling a disconnect between institutions and and ability to like integrate anybody else's thinking, mm. I think that was part of what I liked at least about something that Donald Trump represented. Anyways, it was like that he didn't listen to anybody else except himself. Well, there was there, there was I that, mean, but he was he was also calling out all these institutions for doing that too. It was like I, I saw this kind of potential breaking through yeah but you have to look at it this way when you have one person saying i'm right and everybody else is always wrong and they're always wrong because they don't admit that i'm right then sometimes you have to sort of say wait a minute you know yeah. if the one person is no that's the thing is, I, I, I don't always think that, right and everybody else is always wrong sometimes that means yeah, i don't yeah if you want to get it it, or, it should disappear yeah. in a minute um I don't think that he was right about the things he was claiming. Right. Like, I, I don't think that he was a particularly like intellectually stable person. But I think the probably part of the reason that he gained some traction is that, like, uh, the what 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 what's there's like there's like a, a metric they have for like telling how satisfied people are with with um with their candidates. Like their uh, popularity, I guess. Yeah. Or something like that. It, from what I could gather, and maybe we, you can look up these numbers, I, th I think they've been pretty low for just about, I mean, like w when it came to people voting for Donald Trump or for Hillary Clinton, it was like both sides oh, they, they were, were, both were highly their disliked candidates. Yeah. Right. It's like, how did, how did that happen? How do, how do we get yeah. candidates where nobody likes them? That doesn't make well, any sense. If, if I that's... mean, partly we've come into an era of negative partisanship. Negative partisanship. Which means that people tend to be 
motivated more by dislike of what they of the people that they feel aren't on their side than they are motivated by positive like of the people they feel are on their side. You know what I mean? That's and it's I mean, in nineteen eighty seven, Ronald Reagan struck down what was called I believe it was called the the fair time law. Before nineteen eighty seven, if you were a TV or radio show, if you were discussing a, a controversial issue, you needed to give both sides airtime. You needed to give both sides perspective. It was seen it was, as... It was like just a rule of... It was a rule, and you could say, you know, you'd have inspectors saying, wait a minute, th these guys are not giving a fair and balanced treatment of this thing. And then Reagan struck that down, and then almost immediately we had the rise of right-wing talk Ronald radio. Ronald Reagan stuck, struck that down. Is his government, yeah. Interesting. And then almost immediately we had the rise of right-wing talk radio, which was incendiary for entertainment purposes. Hmm. And then in the early 90s, you had Fox News, which was essentially right-wing talk radio made into TV. Right. And while the rest of the media establishment still sort of pretended to follow this dictum, you know, we had this, this right-wing media sphere break off and create its own sort of reality. Right. And I mean, not even its own set of opinions, its own set of facts, right? Where, you know, now we have this... Well, that's what I'm seeing, yeah, though. But almost I, a I, I don't see that as a, as a really unique thing about Fox News at this point. And I mean, I'm not I'm not a huge news reader. I, I guess I've recently started using a little app called uh, I think it's called Grounded or something like that. It's like kind of shows all the different news. It's at least a good good, good collection of different uh, news websites and kind of collects a general story from mm. all of them put together, which is kind of neat. Which just means like somebody has to build an app to do that now. An aggregator. Because everything, from what I can tell us, is so partisan that like either you spend a bunch of time wrestling with all of these, you know, mutually exclusive stories that can't both be true because they're both so inflammatorily hate, they hate each other yeah. so much they're just writing, they're sort of writing reactive, responsive they're they're more focused on what they hate than what they actually stand yes. for. That it's like you, you can't get a story out of them. That it's like, I mean, you, you get a story, but it's 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 a lopsided story that's only focused on things that they hate. It's, yeah. it's just a story about evil. There's no there's no there's nothing to reach for, and there's also no attempt. Again, there's no attempt to try to integrate different kinds of thinking. There's there's yeah. These ideological islands, ideological siloing. Yeah, but I guess, I mean, it achieved new lows when it used to be that, you know, you could look at different kinds of news and say, I disagree with their interpretation of that. Mm -hmm. But with Donald Trump, literally anything that isn't in his favor, he calls fake. Right. As if it's been completely made up. Right. But I, I, whereas, you know, it's, it's like the entire, it's like saying the entire world that doesn't agree with me mm -hmm. is an illusion. It doesn't exist. But I think that, you know? that's not something that's unique to Donald Trump though. It's like, I think almost everybody has that sense. I think that within my community, I see Christians doing that all the time. I think within, you know, the radical feminist community, I see that sort of behavior all the time too. 
Everybody's I, I doing think, this, I but think the idea Donald that, Trump was the first one to do it. I on, think the idea that you literally say that it's made up is his innovation. It used to be that people would say they're completely full of shit. <laughs> you know, they're wrong. Right. I disagree with their opinion and I disagree with their interpretation. But to actually say that never happened, like to deny the fabric of reality itself because it's inconvenient to you, I mean, that is incredible. Right. You know, that that's new. Because, you know, it, it you know, Stephen Colbert used to he used to tease George Bush with his phrase truthiness. In other words, he would speak in a way that sounded kind of truthy. <laughs> but really it was kind of BS. Okay, fine. But he never actually said that George Bush just made stuff up completely. You know, that that although George Bush is Right-hand man Carl Rove actually did say, you know, mm -hmm. we're in the business of creating reality. But th and, that's and by the time we create a reality, when we talked about stories, by earlier, the time you've debunked it, we'll create another reality. That's what everybody's doing, though. Reality is well, and to this some extent, it. our experience of reality is the stories that we tell ourselves about it. Well, and this is it. I mean, and this is the great shift that happened somewhere in the '90s, where postmodernism used to be associated with a kind of left skepticism. Right of the kind of objective truths, right? But it was picked up by the right big time in the '90s and sort of twisted and turned. Until now, generally speaking, it's people on the left who are saying, "No, no, there, there is something out there that's true. We just got to get to it." And now it's sort of been people on the right who have sort of said, "Well, we can now create whatever reality we want through our rhetorical postulation." Simply if we say it loud enough and over and over and over enough, we can Who, make people I mean, believe it again. I've heard that story, but I, I, I haven't seen it necessarily directly associated with the right. Who is? Well, I mean, the ultimate example is Trump, which is there's literally no evidence that anybody's ever found of any election fraud with any substantial claim. And it has gone through all of these Republican houses and all of these Republican appointed judges, and they've all said, you don't, I mean, you can say stuff all you want, but ultimately you need evidence. Yeah. And I, and there's no evidence, but literally Trump just keeps on saying it. And I mean, it's, it's a classic technique associated with Joseph Goebbels, who was Hitler's propaganda minister. He says, people will always catch you in little lies. Right. What you need to do is do the big lie. And if you say the big lie over and over enough, it will provide cover for everything else. And of course, in Hitler's Germany, the big lie was the Jews are undermining Germany. Right. And there's no evidence for it. But if you just keep saying it over and over and over again, you don't need evidence. You just need it to accord with what people want to believe. Yeah. And I, then you can do all kinds of little lies, which is saying, you know, that Jew over there did this and that Jew over there did that. Well, how do we know? Well, we know because Jews undermine Germany, right? And, and that's, I think, what's been so disturbing about Trump, which is he's broken with any measure of truth whatsoever. And the sad thing is, it's not just Trump. I think everybody knew Trump was a narcissistic gas bag. The scary thing is, is that so many people have enabled this, right, and gone along with him. People who know better. Right. You know, people well, who the, absolutely like know you, better. So you have to take seriously the, the fact that like, why would people do something so crazy? Well, because it's politically expedient. I mean, you look at a guy like Ted Cruz. Mm -hmm. 
you know, he knows. You think that's he, it? That is just political well, well, think about this. Think about this. I mean, and when he was talking about why he voted to overturn the election results in various states, he said, well, I mean, 30% of Americans believe that this, this election was a fraud. Well, wait a minute, Ted, it's because you and Trump have been saying that this election is a fraud. Right. And so now you're using the fact that these people believed what you said to do something. You see how it's completely circular? He never, he was asked under oath, do you believe there's any evidence for this election being a fraud? Can't say anything. But he can say 30% of people believe it's a fraud. Right? Which is completely circular, you know? Right. Well, the thing with the German example was every big lie seems like it's founded in some small amount of truth or something that resonates with people, right? Well, I mean, you'd probably find it hard to make a historical case for the fact that Jews undermine Germany. Well, they you, but were you, successful to the modern man. That's like yeah. they're jealous of them, right? So there's, there's. I mean, like you, you get yeah, a similar I mean, this, story. The specific version of the big lie in Germany was that Germany lost the First World War because Jews betrayed them. Mm-hmm. Internally, oh, interesting. Okay, you know that's that's the the smaller version of the big lie, which is part of the bigger lie, which came out of actually Russia in the late nineteenth century, with the publication of a book called The Protocols of the Elders of Zion, which said there's a massive Jewish conspiracy to rule the world, and they're screwing everybody to do it. You know, and, and you know, and then you had the blood libel that Jews harvest Christian children and kill them and drink their blood. Right. And you'll notice that that's the same thing that came up in the QAnon conspiracy that most of those Trump folks were parading around in the Capitol wearing QAnon shirts. The blood libel showed up in a lot of the QAnon conspiracy stuff, except not Jews anymore. Now it's Hillary Clinton and the Democrats. Right. They kill children and satanically drink their blood. But it's literally lifted straight out of the pages of the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. Interesting. But, you know, it's it's incredible how these conspiratorial memes keep showing up and how persistent they are. But the thing... So you're talking about postmodernism. I mean, there's a, there's a ton of other things we could talk about now. I mean, you brought up a lot of things. But uh, when you're talking about postmodernism, you said, like, there was... And I, I saw this. There's a sense of, like, you know... Basically, well, I mean, actually, I, I haven't seen this in the Christian community. I, I wanted you to maybe back this up if you could point to some example of it, because you said that, like, the evangelical community kind of took the postmodernist theory and, and wanted to use it to say, hey, you know, anybody can tell a story about reality, and they're all equal, and it, it doesn't matter, you know, like, you, you guys are just making stuff up, and, th- and that's fine. Well, I, I mean, I don't think it's quite that broad. It was... Specifically, a strategy used in the mid-90s in the debate over creationism, which is, you know, the argument was, is that if postmodernism has proved that there's no such thing as objective scientific truth, then evolution is an ungrounded theory because it's based on science, but science itself has no grounding. (laughs) So therefore, you know, if we're going to go with one ungrounded truth... You know, we Christians don't pretend that our truth is grounded in anything except Scripture. So why don't we give Scripture just as much authority as science, which is also 
now seen by postmodernism okay. as unreliable. I, I can follow the logic of that argument, but I don't. Yeah. I haven't seen anybody ever make that argument in in a Christian circle. I I what I the only thing I've heard in like more recent years concerning like postmodernism is like when Christian apologetics classes are talking about postmodernism and, and they kind of use that as a meme to like turn postmodernists on their heads and like f- be like oh well if you think that all truth is relative then then that means that your thought that all truth is relative is relative <laughs> and just yeah. like silly circular or like it's yeah like, no i mean but that one's as old as c.s lewis that right. one yeah but he used to do the same thing yeah it's 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 a it's a it's a dumb argument and it doesn't really take seriously either position no, no, and and it's also the fact that most people in the humanities haven't really associated with postmodernism since the nineties. You know what I mean? It it was an it was an intellectual. How should we say? I had a professor once who studied the Victorian age, and he looked back at the the eighteen nineties period, the period that produced. Uh, you know, uh, Oscar Wilde and various other things like that. And this was an age which was characterized by what they called decadence. In other words, it was a deliberate age of intellectual exhaustion and overstatement and posing and, you know what I mean? And it and it was sort of big for 10 or 15 years, but then it sort of got superseded by people who got their feet back on the ground and were doing something different. And he said... You're going to look back and you're going to see the 80s and 90s as our own kind of gilded age, our own kind of decadence, you know, with postmodernism being all of these people posing as ironists and being more cynical than thou. But it'll get superseded because eventually people want to get back to the fact that we need to talk about things Mm -hmm. and we need to talk about what matters to people. And... You know, nobody can live in perpetual irony all the time and pretend that nothing matters to anybody all the time. And so, you know, pretty much since the 90s, it's kind of like, well, you know, most people have decided that, well, what matters is, you know, the welfare of human beings and the welfare of the planet. Let's talk about that, you know, and and so most of the discourse has been around how do we make society function better for all people and how do we make human presence be less harmful to the planet right you so, know? so we've in some sense accepted religion again well i mean except it's not a theistic form but i think you're right i mean people now believe in you know an ideal the idea that, a common that, ideal. that you know here's the thing when a when a conservative person says progress they're usually talking about economic development you know what I mean? As yeah, in, yeah, yeah. as in this, this factory is real progress for our community. Right. When a person on the left says progress, what they're usually talking about is something that creates a more inclusive society by tearing down barriers that prevent somebody from full participation in it, whether it's race or gender or what have you. I don't know ethnicity. Sure. But that's a fundamental. It's one word, but it means completely different things to different people. Right. You know what I mean? And and that's part of the problem which is we don't have a shared notion of progress because to somebody on the right, a more inclusive society looks like the opposite of progress. It looks like, you know, the world's going to hell in a handbasket. 
All these people who used to know their place don't know their place anymore. And that looks like chaos. That doesn't look like progress. That looks like, that looks like decline. So do we take both of these positions seriously though? Well, we have to take them seriously because they are what organizes people's, as you said, belief, you know, in terms of what people think is important. Like, when I hear both of those stories, like I hear, you know, that we need economic stability and we need economic progress and we need people to be, we need to, people need to have purpose and they need to be able to, to make a life for themselves. That sounds like a compelling story. And when I hear that people are being excluded and people are being, you know, downtrodden and, and we need to like break some glass ceilings, we need to break some walls down so people can join in who are being held back from participation. That sounds like a compelling story to me too, but I, I don't, I don't feel like the, a large part of either of the groups that are standing for those ideals is willing to take seriously the ideas of the other side. No, no, because they both have different stories, right? One in which, you know, rampant economic development is a kind of degradation of the environment or what have you. And the other is, the rapid breakdown of society, mm-hmm. which is often how the removal of barriers is, is represented, is a, a narrative of decline. Right? Yeah. But, I mean, the interesting thing for a Christian is how that switched from... Because, I mean, traditionally, it was supposed to be Christians who were concerned about the welfare of people and, you know, and, and the good of society and... You know, practical Christianity in the last half of the 19th century said, doesn't matter what your denomination is, we can all agree that we need to help the poor. Right. Which, and, you know and that's I mean? the, 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 the front end or like the, the fundamental part of what makes evangelicalism, evangelicalism is probably the part that frustrates me most, most about it is that it's, it's not about the, you know, active realization of like it's not about trying to make the world better it's about the world is breaking down anyways we give up on this we've just got to get everybody to go say the sinner's prayer yeah and it's like that if that's what the religion is at the core it's like that's such a useless it does it doesn't even work it it doesn't work for longer than a couple of years for any individual who's taking part in it so it's got a very very short lifespan that that sort of ideology can get you and I, I don't... Well, and I think you said it earlier when you sort of said that what you figured was one of the sort of worst parts of the evangelical thinking tendency was the apocalypticism, right. you know, the idea, or what's often called millennialism. Mm-hmm, right. But, you know, somebody like Mark Knoll will point out, that's not a traditional form of Christianity because... Not even traditional form of Protestantism. Most Protestants in the United States, for most of the American history up until the 1880s, were post-millennialists. I mean, they believed that their job was to build the Christian kingdom on earth. Jesus gave us the blueprint. It's called scripture. Our job is to make it happen. Right. To make a good society. To, To take... You know, and sometimes romantic stuff about like how heaven's going to be someday. It's like this is literally the blueprint for we have to build build the kind of world that Jesus wants to come back to, right? Because he that's that's what he told us to do, right? It's not just spreading the word; it's building the kingdom, 
you know, right. but since the mid late 1800s, this brand of millennialism, usually called premillennial dispensationalism, which we know is kind of that rapture idea, yeah. has been really dominant. And, you know, George Marsden, for example, says, and, and Sutton, they, that's really what took over conservative evangelicalism because most of the rest of the church stayed post-millennial. They stayed with the idea that we need to actually build a good, yeah. a Christ-like society. But, you know, that became a very popular form of, by, by popular, I mean populist form of Christianity because it, it, it promised people immediate solutions. It was like, well, I can't change the world. But if I can change my life, I can go to heaven. Mm-hmm. Right. So, but that's that's kind of a sad admission and a sad presupposition for 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 religion to make. Just oh, we can't change the world. Yeah, it, it is kind <laughs> like of it's giving just up. giving up on the project of the world. Yeah, but I I think I want to kind of trace back that because I I I I feel like people may have at some point in history been able to, I guess, relate to people who thought differently than them, at least a little bit. Yeah, maybe. And I, I, think part of, I think part of what got us here is that the more information you're presented with, the more data you're overwhelmed with, the more you get this looming sense of, I have no idea what's going on here. Somebody tell me how to interpret this information. Mm. And so I think that there's a kind of a sliding scale that, you know, the more connected our world gets and by, by um, process of that, like the, the more connected the world gets, the more data we're going to have access to and the more data is going to be dumped onto our plate. And the more that, that, that pile of data grows up, the more we are going to realize we're, or, or the more we're just going to be confronted with that overwhelming sense of, I, I don't know what to do with this. Yeah. I need somebody to give me a, like we become more and more reliant on a simpler and simpler story. It's like the, the more information we get, the less we're, we even try to interact with it. Yeah. And so I, I think that I, I want to like the, the whole progress of the human or, or like, the whole project that we've been experimenting with for the last whatever, I don't know, I guess since, I mean, there's got to be a critical point where, where the, the amount of connection met our ability to deal with it. But at somewhere along the line, we started being too connected and too, having too much access to the world and too much access to the information of the world. And that signals a retreat. Where we have well, to, we have to go further and further again into our own little ideology and build up these, well, I mean, what's happened is we've moved from institutional curation. In other words, like a museum is curated. They select right, sure. they select things for people on the basis of the experts of the museum deciding what is the most important artifact that people should see. And I mean, it used to be that we would trust our major newspapers to curate the news of the day. And later on, we would trust our major broadcast television news to curate the news of the day. And we'd all read the same newspapers We'd all watch the same TV and we'd get eight or 10 important news stories as selected by the quote experts, right? But now we've kind of moved in and those news stories would have been fact-checked 
verified for you know verified for uh, for um, for um, for accuracy, and then the journalists would have been checked for objectivity. If they were seen as biased, they would have got their story cut. So there was eight or ten different curatorial processes that went along behind there. Right. But I mean, now it's all self-curated, and now basically the the loudest internet screamer gets the most clicks. And those those curatorial processes where people would have, you know, checked what was being said for evidence before you ran the story or ran it through three sources or, you know, verified that, that this was an objective presentation yeah. and checked the soundness of the argument. You know, that's a, yeah. you know, it's a, the internet does not reward any of that. Quite the opposite. No. It rewards somebody who says something who gets your dander up. You know? exactly, exactly, and it doesn't matter whether it's true as long as it but gets like, your dander up. So that's the internet does that, but literally, any I mean, getting together in a group of ten people does that, but just to a smaller extent. And to some, sometimes we can handle that. You know, if we if we go to a party once a week and we're in a room full of ten people, we're having a conversation with those ten people. It that that dynamic demands a little bit more of you to not say things that are outrageous, or at least not too many things. Well, exactly, because, least... I mean, if you're in a group of 10 people, I'm sorry for interrupting, if you're in a group of 10 people and you say something crazy, there might be three people in that group that nod and agree with you. Right. But they also kind of can know that everybody else in the group is going to think that's crazy. Mm -hmm. and then you'll have somebody in the group say, really, Garrett, do you have any evidence for that? Mm -hmm. And then you'll probably say, well, let me rephrase what I said. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Well, Garrett, you know, you that's not really a sound argument. You know, you're kind of contradicting yourself three times here. And then you'll say, okay, okay, fine. Let me put it this way. And then even though those three people in the group probably would have agreed with you that first time, you've come up with and you've come up with a proposition that has been sanded down by the other people in the group. And now it probably accords with evidence to everybody's satisfaction, and it probably is free of logical contradiction. You know I what don't I mean? think that happens. I think you what don't happens think that when people you're... say, "Wait a minute, well, Garrett, let, let, wait a minute," let Garrett. me put it to you this way, okay? Okay. <laughs> okay. I think when you're, what I, the kind of behavior I, I see, or at least one of the temptations, and and I think that a, a larger room of people uh, rewards this sort of behavior is that, and and the larger the room becomes, the more you get of this behavior. You yeah. say something outrageous and it gets a response as opposed to if you try to really talk through something, people yawn and they go join another conversation. Depends what your crowd is. Yeah. Right. I mean, if your crowd is looking for entertainment, absolutely. Right. And I mean, but trying to, I, I get, but that, that's the danger though that I'm more afraid of is just that the, the larger the room becomes, the more, if you want to get everybody interested in what you're saying, the more you have to tell a really viscerally interesting story. And the yeah. less it, I mean, like we were saying, the more you're telling a story, the, the more facts you have to ignore. The more yeah. you have to distill things down to a single, you know, line that pulls you through and says, we're going from here and we're going to there. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean. And so when that's the only <clears throat> sort of conversations that we can have. So, like, I, I think probably the fewer people that are in the room, the more technical a conversation becomes. I think that those things are kind of reciprocal. Yeah, Maybe. I mean, especially if the people don't see eye to eye completely. It's and, just, but it's also impossible. If you have a hundred people in a room, only one of those people is going to get to talk, and the only way everyone's going to be interested in what they have to say is, is they have to approach, they have to say something in a way that you know meets everybody in the room. Or else they have to sit there, right, Evan, and 
they can't leave and they can just, just play on their phones while the other person talks. <laughs> I was thinking that uh, Hitler's story must have been pretty. Yeah, totally. What what story is that? The story about the Jews. Oh, the Hitler's big, the big lie. What a story. Yeah, well, I mean, it was. I mean, again, I don't want to take credit for any of this. This is all like out there. I'm just repeating. Mm-hmm. Uh, this isn't coming from me. Okay. Like I'm not originating this is what I'm saying. I don't want to give the impression that I make it all this stuff up myself. But why, not? Uh, why, don't, why don't you want to just make up stuff? Cuz that's called plagiarism. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. But well, no, I mean, but there's a there's a sense that when, no, when the, the concept of the big lie okay. has been yeah. I believe that it was coined by Hannah Arendt in 1962 and it was a critique of Nazi Germany okay. and it's become kind of a staple of political philosophy classes since then. The idea that it's very hard to get away from a little lie because little lies can be fact-checked. But if you make a big lie, you know, you can't, they're beyond fact-checking. They become epi- they become epistemic. In other words, it's just, oh yeah, that's at the foundation of what I believe. And then everything else But So why, why, why do they work? If it's such a big lie, why doesn't everybody, like, like I think what Evan was saying before, it's like, I think the only way a really big lie works is if you tap into something that people do think especially so I, th- I think it's you could espe- you could tell it's especially big lie and i think that this is the same lie that trump is well, doing I, I think you can tell an especially big lie like that and have people believe you if it's a, especially if it's a story that nobody else is telling at that time maybe i and, mean evan said that that and i and i take his point that very often a big lie has some kernel of truth mm-hmm. in, in other words you know it, it's what people believe to be true so let's say that there were some Jewish people in Germany who were running the banking system mm-hmm. for historical reasons, because Christians weren't supposed to lend money to other Christians. And that meant that mm-hmm. Jewish people were the money lenders in the society. Right. Fine. So, okay. So let's see that a few people that, that there was a general sense that they didn't like these Jewish bankers. That's fine. But the bigger thing that somebody like Hannah Rent would say is that it's not so much what everybody believes but it's also what fits with it, what everybody wants to believe. Mm-hmm. And everybody wants to believe it's not our fault. Mm-hmm. Everybody wants to have somebody to blame in everything other words, on. Here we, have this, here we have this contradiction. Germany in the early 20th century saw itself as the greatest society in the world. Mm-hmm. And yet it lost the First World War. Yeah. How do we reconcile German right. greatness with us losing a war? Yeah. Okay. Clearly, somebody must have screwed us. Yeah. This is I, who just, is it? We're reading. Well, Don we Quixote, don't. We don't like those Jews. And that's every right? single. I mean, every almost every event of anything he does in the book is a failure, a monumental failure. It's a hilarious failure. And the, yes. what's even more hilarious is always his response to it is to redirect the blame to, wh- to whatever somebody else's fault. Yes, it's, it, it's hilarious, and it's like it's such a parody of that sort of behavior. That's right. Those giants must have turned into windmills at the last <laughs> second somehow. Somehow. Yeah. It's, and yeah. it's it's so funny, but it's like that's. But that's hopefully, I, I, I mean, part of what I want to take from that story is a reminder that, that I'm going to do that myself and that I do do that. Like, I'm trying not to smile at you saying do do. <laughs> right. I was going to say that yeah, too. Okay, go ahead. Okay. I saw you hesitate at the bottom for of one this conversation where two, yeah, just, exactly. two little boys on that's the couch. That's right, yes. <laughs> Giggling. Yeah. But. Yeah, so you you want to blame it on everybody else. So that that's an easy lie to tell for one. So that that's because one, it's what you want. To that's believe, a hallmark right? of lies that people I mean, and will swallow. If you get swallow, something with a little bit lies. of truth, but more importantly, 
what everybody want, wants to right. believe, then you've got the magic sauce because want to believe means you're not going to check the evidence too hard. Right. And and I so I see that story being told from within within the you know the Republican community, and I see it really being told in the liberal community too. It's like everything that's wrong with the world is all the libtards fault. And everything that's wrong with the world is the alt-right's fault. Yeah. Right? It's like that that that's a dumb story and that's the same sort of dumb story that, you know, that that cost the Holocaust. Yeah. Well, I mean, but it, it's not always just you know, split equally to either side. I mean, the fact is through the 1960s and 70s the crazy wackos were generally on the left. You basically had a center-right consensus. I mean, there were wackos on the right too, like the John Birch Society and, you know, Ku Klux Klan and various things like that. But, you know, your country club Republicans had nothing to do with those people. You know, your, your standard church-going American didn't have really much to do with, you know, the, the right-wing wackos. Yeah. But the Democratic Party in the 60s and 70s was like the Republican Party today where it was being it was being torn apart between center left people and wacko left people like what was technically called the new left which was a marxist organization and it really did tear apart the party mm -hmm. and arguably that exhaustion with that kind of left wing you know hand-wringing between, you know, whatever the, the two factions of the Democrats were, were fighting about led to the swing towards the conservative consensus of the 80s and, 90, 80s and 90s, with Bill mm -hmm. Clinton being understood as a conservative. I mean, I know the Republicans don't like that, but he was a, a sort of center-right politician in most of his forms. But now, arguably, the same thing that happened to the Democrats in the 60s and 70s is happening to the Republican Party, which is you have your Mitt Romneys and your, you know, God forbid, I'm even saying Liz Cheney's a centrist Republican, but you have your kind of traditional Republicans, yeah. you know, who are people which, who would have been right of most of the Republicans in the 60s and 70s. Yeah. But they're the traditional moderates now, like your John McCain's even getting thrown under the bus, you know. That's, and... These rabid, and I'm going to say it, they're right-wing wackos, you know, just like there were left-wing wackos trying to take over control of the Democrat Party, Democratic Party in the 60s and 70s. Right now, you know, there are fringe leftists out there. You know, the people in Portland breaking windows. But yeah. I think 99% of, you know, people in the Democratic Party, they don't want to have anything to do with those people. But... You know, it's they don't have anything to do with those people, but there's this is kind of a part of the bottom of our problem is right now. It seems like you have the sense that there's like a lot more wackos on the right than there are on the left. Oh, and I think objectively that's true in terms of I social psychosis. Objectively, don't have like from all of the resources, and it's like I don't know how drowning I am in my my echo chamber, but like. I just don't see that story at all. Like well, in I, terms of people who literally are not connected to consensual reality anymore. Right. I'm saying I see like so, I don't know. Like, it's not that I don't see that on the right. It's just that I like, I don't know. Somehow my curation of stories about reality 
tells me that there's more of that on the left. Well, yeah, but when I look at the Biden administration, it's, you know, it's so centrist. I mean, we're going to follow the science with COVID. We're going to follow social policy with our, you know, directives here. We're going to, you know, we're going to follow the evidence with that over there. All of this stuff seems radical because it's saying... I don't think it seems radical. I, I think it just seems... The problem is, like, again, I, I'm not... I can't give a really technical critique of of politicians and, and their policies and stuff like that because I'm just, like, there's so many expert issues that, that you'd I'd want to speak to, but I'm just, like, I'm totally a layperson. Yeah. And, like... But I mean, like the, the story that I can understand about Biden is just like, I mean, you said that he's so centrist and I, like w when I hear him talk, I, I like that. I, I like that he talks about being, you know, the president of all of America, not just the right or the left. I think that's, that would be a great line to run on. And I mean, and he sort of did. And that, that's, well, I mean, after Trump, he just seems so sane. Right. But on the other side of it, it's like, he doesn't seem that sane to me he looks like a, a almost dead person that's like well, barely has trump i guess he is <laughs> you know because he's not screaming about things all the time and he's no, not... i mean like literally almost dead like i don't know how long like i think we're gonna have president kamala harris within the next couple of weeks <laughs> well he's only a what a couple years older than trump i don't is it... they're both over 80 i think mm, yeah they're both they're both pretty there, old yeah. they're both in the death range but it's just like there's some obvious mental issues with this guy and i i don't like it, it doesn't seem like he can even like during the debates even though you you see more like basically straight up lies from trump he seems more mentally there even though when they're when they're having this back and forth it's like he he's actually engaging with the conversation in in like a sort of funny way and it's like i don't know I, Again, I, well, but I mean, it's what you said earlier. Anybody who just tries to be reasonable is going to get walked away from because he's not very entertaining. Right. And so that's the, it's like you, know? you have to. It's like we're either getting a, a good storyteller, which I think Tr Trump was definitely a big storyteller, or we're getting somebody who's trying to be trying to be sane. But I mean, and the thing is, is that Biden is a practicing devout Christian. You know, he is what Christianity used to be before it kind of lost touch with, you know, with, with its grounding in evidence. Like, you know, it used to be that, that you could have people of faith who still were able to look at the world and say, okay, let's, 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 you know, get some evidence about the world, make some decisions, you know? Can we, Maybe pivot to something else for a second. To maybe, maybe we'll make our way back here, but I, I don't know. I I get, I'm getting lost in this conversation because I I just like I don't, I don't understand politics. <laughs> <laughs> all I can understand is is the story level. It's like that's, that's all I can process. It's it's too much of a, there, there's so much of a rabbit hole of data you can go down and and try to understand it. But there's obviously a, a disconnect here as far as the stories that we're understanding about it, but. If we can come back to postmodernism for a second. So the, the problem with it, obviously, is that, yeah, if you just tell everybody that their story about reality is just their story and that's fine, they should believe it, and nobody has a correct story, it, it doesn't work. right? Yeah. And it doesn't work because we can't work together 
on anything because it, it, as soon as even you and I want to have a conversation about something, we can only move forward within this little sort of conversational room that we've built for ourselves where we agree on something. Yeah. It's like we're, we have to follow, follow that story together somewhere. Right? Like we, we can talk about math if we both agree that two plus two equals four, but if we just both fundamentally don't have the same agreement about that, and I guess that's a, that's a good example is that you know within the within the system of math, there, there's some presuppositions that you make about numbers, and two plus two does equal four, as long as you follow certain rules about not dividing by zero and things like that. And so, we we kind of, especially if you talk to a mathematician, they they won't probably see this but i have the sense that math is like math isn't reality math no. is is a certain way of systematizing reality that again does ignore certain facts about reality and i, I probably need to have some mathematician who, who really doesn't believe that talk talk to me for a while and tell me why i'm wrong but and, and, until they do that this this is the opinion that i have that yeah that math is is a system for trying to quantify reality in, in some terms we can work with and again, it has to ignore certain information. It's, it's chosen yeah. certain, certain ways of analyzing the data in order to try to make it play well with itself. Yes. Well, I mean, that's a good analogy, but it, it's using what's called deductive reasoning. Deductive reasoning yeah. is, okay. because I know this, therefore that's true. Right. Because I and know the bottom of every deductive reasoning system is, four, is, is some axioms. Assumptions, yeah. Right. And, and it, that, I mean, that's the way <clears throat> geometry is done. Yes. Right? And... and Obviously, the problem with any system that's deductive, any deductive system is that you may not have all of the correct axioms yes. at the bottom of it, right? But which, I think what we're dealing with lately is more to do with inductive reasoning, which is simply looking at looking at a set of stuff and saying, "What does that this mean?" This is how generally so. It like, goes, I mean, yeah. if I see you, if I see a table with five cookies on it. Mm -hmm. And I look away and I see you standing beside the cookies with crumbs on your mouth and there's four cookies. I'm going to say, Garrett, why'd you eat that cookie? The problem is when you say there was only ever four. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to say, no, there were five. And you're going to say, you're, no, you're a liar. That's fake news. There was only ever four. These crumbs are fake news too. You didn't really see those. Right. You know what I mean? That's what we're dealing with here, which is, it's not any kind of sort of grand metaphysical thing it's just literally no sometimes things were there and now they're not sometimes you know this is out there and just like i mean you know you can't pretend that there's no correlation between human produced greenhouse gas and climate change i mean you can't pretend there's no correlation between cigarette smoking now and lung cancer we tried to pretend for a very long time, but just because you said, no, there's not, no, there's not, no, there's not, you know, at some point you have to say, yes, there is, you know, because it's real. Right. You know? And so, so yeah, so we get fed up with a, with a postmodern way of, of throwing things together pretty quick because pretty soon we realize there has to be something real. Yeah. And that's part of, I mean, I, again, I've still only read about a chapter and a half of of your paper, your, your your thesis, or I don't know what's the technical oh that word. book yeah the book yeah I wouldn't, I wouldn't, like I wouldn't knock yourself out trying to read that I, I'm gonna try to finish it I mean I'm, I'm gonna give you due justice and and <laughs> try to get through it but the no, you're braver than I am 
<laughs> but part of the the problem you were getting at there is that, that yeah, there's there's a sense of like we get fed up with it, and but that's also what paranoia is, right? Is is the is the the sense of like you, you know you keep telling me these stories, and like I have a sense that there is a real story out yeah. there. Yes, paranoia is what's often called hyperinterpretation of errant data. Right. Which means whenever I say, you know, if I'm looking at 100 cookies and I say, you know, these cookies are all really good chocolate chip cookies and you notice that two of them are peanut butter cookies, you realize that there's some errant data there. What I've just <laughs> said doesn't entirely fit. And so you're going to start thinking, why did he say there were chocolate chip cookies? Right. Clearly, is he trying to fool me? Is he trying to hide something? Is there, are they all made out of peanut butter and I just thought they were chocolate? Are right. they chocolate chip peanut butter? Mm -hmm. You know, does he know that I'm allergic to peanuts? Is mm -hmm. he trying to slip one into my lunch and, mm -hmm. you know, make me have an allergic reaction? So it's the hyperinterpretation of errant data based on, you know. But how do we know what's hyperinterpretation and what's just there, insight? You put into your finger on it. You put your finger on it. Right, which is generally speaking, we use Occam's razor, which is the simplest explanation. Which we're going to presume it's the true, but then you get into cases where paranoia is justified. Right, right, where they're, you know, just because a person's paranoid doesn't mean he doesn't really have enemies. <laughs> you know? Right, that's the problem. Right, in some cases there have been conspiracies. Some cases there really have been people. And the worst lying thing about us, paranoid know? people, or people who are sort of too paranoid is that they make a laughing stock they make they make the position then look foolish yes and then it kind of ruins it for everybody else who might want to ask those questions and then they're like oh well i don't want to be associated with that crazy guy well exactly i mean if let's look at the early 60s you had a bunch of people running around screaming that cigarettes were killing us yeah and you had a bunch of people running around saying fluoridated water is a government plot to kill us mm-hmm they kind of maybe seemed equally valid in the early 60s. Mm -hmm. Now we look back at the Floridation people and say they were a bunch of paranoids. Mm -hmm. And the, the, the cigarette people as, well, they were a bunch of brave whistleblowers. Yeah. But that's what history lets us see. Right. You know what I mean? At the time, they were both well outside the consensus you, know, you still had doctors advertising cigarettes as, you know, this is a refreshing pick-me-up, you know, that kind of thing, you know, and uh, and you still had people walking around with their teeth falling out of their mouth saying, no way I'm putting that fluoride into my body, right. you know, and, you know, okay, well, history is kind of, kind of proven that, generally speaking, fluoridated water has been a pretty good thing for the human race in terms of general dental health. Generally speaking, cigarettes have been accepted now as they are not good for your lungs. Right. But that's what history's taught us, you know. And at the time, both of those people seemed like a bit nutty. So I in in this the Nina Simone song we were listening to before we started recording, she just has that line that stuck out to me, you know, too slow. Oh yeah. Going too slow. And I, I had to kind of extrapolate. I assume that was kind of a, a conversation that was happening during the time yeah. of of like the human rights movements of of well, various areas. But like to some extent, is that almost what you're arguing for? Is that we we don't get to figure out those solutions that quickly? We have to just let them run by well, slowly. Or sometimes, as in the case of the civil rights movement, 
discourse isn't enough and you need somebody to sort of get out in the streets and start, you know, sitting in and and Mm -hmm. demanding more. I mean, the discourse at the time was you had your, your racist wing of American politics, which was mostly the Democrat part, Democratic party Mm -hmm. up until the 1950s. And they basically said segregation is necessary because Mm -hmm. the races are separate, but not equal. And then you had your liberal consensus at the time, which was in a very paternalistic way. Well, you know, those black people, they're basically an infantile race and they're gradually like children developing the tools to govern themselves. But as good parents, we need to incrementally give them a little more responsibility very slowly. And as a race, they will grow into eventually the power to govern themselves Mm -hmm. And, you know, they'll get there sometime, you know, and, and this was, so, I mean, this was the liberal consensus in the right. 1960s. So I, I could see that. Right. And so this is why people like, you know, Nina Simone and the civil rights activists are saying it's too slow. Right. You know, we need direct action. But the other side, I mean, that, that is an easy position to kind of look back and say, that's, that's really foolish. Well, I mean, it's easy now. And that's what I'm saying. It's easy now. I think that there might be more to that position of of slowness to th- than just that kind of silly story because anytime you reorganize society, right? It's like you were saying before, it's like a, 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 from some perspective that just becomes a, a new chaotic That's world that nobody knows how yeah. to interact with, which yeah. this and, is something that is really hard to try to parse out in a, in a, in a simple and quick way, but I think, I think we're struggling with with that right now too. I, th- I think there's there's a sense that we can't, we haven't figured out how to run experiments, or we've we've forgotten how to run experiments on a small scale. It's like w- when we want to make chains, we, we we feel like we have to make a change on a on a huge you know national level. We can't just let you know communities experiment with things. There has to there's so much policing and so much. It's like. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's the traditional Burkean conservative argument, which is, if it ain't broke, why fix it? You know, and and the chance of any change is that it could be worse than what you're changing. But the, the Christian position should sort of be, everything's broke, so we obviously ought to try to be fixing everything, but we can only work on so much at a time. Yeah, or the other Christian argument is that this world is permanently broke. Right. Which I mean, that, gotta, that seems like an get to the, We got to get to the next one because it doesn't it doesn't account for what you know, the the actual, the Christian like the Christ's message. Well, yeah, I mean, arguably you're right. I mean, Christ, why would he spend so much time preaching against poverty and, and the you know and illness and and the the downtrodden and why would he spend so much time talking about social justice if he didn't want you know, Christians to be concerned about social justice. Yeah. See, but I, I, I wouldn't even tell Christ's story so much about social justice. I think I think that's definitely a good part of it. But I think, and I mean, I think we're both probably reading somewhat our both our, our worldview in, into the teachings of Christ because it's like it's the that's the story that you you of all stories, right? Yeah. So if we're trying to tell a story about morality and we want to link it to that, of course. But I mean, I, I see his teachings more being about the the calling out of both sides 
of these of these issues, the, the calling out of, of the you know the social injustice, and also the calling out sort of of the the riffraff or the, or the people on, on the the margins of society and saying you know step it up. I I don't think that I don't think that Jesus was just about I don't think the fundamental Christian message is about inclusion, and I don't think the fundamental Christian message is about you know. It's about the opposite either. I don't think it's about, uh, you know, defining some people as sinners and 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 excluding them either. It's I think it's about both. I think, and I, and I really see that especially with a lot of Paul's letters too. And obviously that's not Christ's teaching, but that it seems to me that the core issue he's getting at with Romans and with Corinthians is basically Jews and Gentiles get along. And and those two groups are there's there are they're a great analog to our our current moment too because the Jews are these theologically conservatives who are really unwilling to accept the the sort of crazy and well, very and spirited I mean, talk of the Gentiles and they had an established institution right. which was threatened by right. this crazy heretical sect so there's there's you know, these two yeah two parties all there's always a two party system throughout history of the institution and sort of the outcasts and I don't think Jesus's message was directed to either one of those groups individually, but to both of them saying, you know, humanity or like the progress towards heaven is about integration. Yeah. And it's, it's not about, you know, saying, look at pointing at somebody and saying they're an idiot and being able to blame all your problems on them. I think you, I think that the Christian message is about saying you guys have some problems and I have some problems and both of those are worth taking seriously. So why don't we help each other? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to completely defer to you because you spent <laughs> a lot more time with scripture than I have. So I'm not going to pretend to to speak for Jesus, but uh, yeah, uh, from what well, I have gotten is that, you know, if we were the people able to figure out definitively what Jesus says, you know, we'd be, we'd be the smartest people in 2000 years sure. because if just the little I know is that, that, at different moments, he seems to have hit very different tones. I mean, the, the, right. there's the the angry, I'm coming again with a sword in my mouth tone. Yeah. And then there's the Beatitudes, right? Yeah. I mean, and it's the Beatitudes kind of say, I'm setting up a church on earth that I want to take care of poor people. I want it, I want it to be, you know, a, a compassionate, caring. And then there's this, you know you believe in me and or or not and if you're not you're going to hell mm-hmm. and i'm going to give you a picture of hell it's a burning lake of fire mm-hmm. you know so there's like i say i'm i'm not an expert on this but sure. it's difficult to pin down sort of one consistent right it's like message. it's it's a huge mysterious message there's a ton to it yeah and i mean and then there's paul whose job was a little different. His job was to try to set up an enduring institution from a bunch of a bunch of squabbling mini churches who all threatened to go their own way. Right. You know, and become heretical sects. Mm-hmm. So he had a kind of a job to do. And he kind of codified here's how churches should work. Yeah. Which wasn't entirely what Jesus was doing. He was sort of saying here's how here's how people who believe in me should act or you know conduct themselves or think right which is a little different than saying how a church should work you know they're not entirely inconsistent but you know 
you probably never saw Jesus saying, you know, women shouldn't speak in church. Right. You well, know what I mean? And it's like, to uh, to some extent, I, I, I think Paul and Christ are talking about, they're, they're talking about the same message and applying it to different levels of reality. Like, so Paul's trying to, to establish a lasting institution. That's fair enough, yeah. And Christ is trying to establish a lasting religion for all people. Yeah. Right? Well, and if you, you know, and if you're a person of faith, you also believe that he was coming to bring a new revelation of God's word. Right. Full out. But just because God became man doesn't mean that, that God is going to speak in ways that ordinary people are going to find completely, you know, easy right. to understand. <laughs> well, it's like part of part of the great thing about doing it that way talking in such a confusing way as Christ did is that even though it is, you know, you, you establish an institution, you establish an institution that's not able to escape the confounding and confusing nature of its core beliefs. And this is it. I mean, I've even heard that argument, which is part of the genius of what Jesus said is that he produced such discursive instability Mm -hmm. that, the institution constantly has to is forced itself. to account right. for the fact that it can't right. ever settle, can't ever settle and say, yeah. now I know what it's talking about. Yeah, as soon as you've as really... arguably the Pharisees had settled, you know? Right. Yeah. And, and that's what I like. I see that as just being the institutional problem is that an institution usually establishes itself pretty clearly. And if it isn't that clear, somebody starts, you know, poking holes in in the fundamental axioms of that institution saying well we better shore this up we we better and it's like the, they kind of they harden and become i don't know to get get too poetic they become brittle it's like yeah i think that's a good well wasn't did jesus say something about the the tree and the reed one bends in the wind and the other blows over i can't remember mm-hmm. exactly right now i thought that was a parable maybe I, uh, that might be from some. It might might be Aesop. Might test. be Aesop too. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Okay, one more thing I want to try and maybe talk to you about for a few minutes. I don't know what time. How, how much time do we have left? Or You're at left, one hour fifty six minutes. Okay, so oh, I don't want to keep you anybody up who's stayed with us this long. <laughs> have a drink. Um, actually, also you want to just double check. Is the camera still going? <laughs> okay. Yeah, the camera still screwed going. up last time. So. <laughs> that's right. Oh, we forgot to push record. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's why we, get, we got the audio backup, so we got that at least regardless. But um, okay, I wanted to ask you about symbolism because obviously, teaching literature is something you you're bound to run into, and you have to teach about it. So I assume you have some thoughts about it and and how it works and how to interpret it. Like specifically, okay, well. I tried to get into this last time, but it looked like it was going to kind of distract us from what we were interested in talking about at the moment. But um, you were teaching last semester, Evan's class, about Lacan's theories. Oh, yeah. And yeah, he's we interpreting were, Freud. We right? were doing li- literary theory, yes. Okay, right. So so what's first of all, what's literary theory? Literary theory is just all of the thinking about how literature is written and read. Okay. The different so, theories about how it's written, how it's read, and what it means. In the introduction to that class, Evan, and this is what we kind of went back and forth on all the time, was about like, we had several conversations about how there's like a historocritical way of reading literature, or there's a, I forget what the other. Yeah, no, there's several to. different ways, but. But there was two that were, they were kind of in stark opposition. It's like one would be more 
kind of concerned with the deeper meaning of the story, and one would be more concerned with what the story tells about the the flawed nature of the author. <laughs> yeah, well, no, yeah, absolutely. There's You can read literature as kind of biographical to sort of get into the author's head. That's one way of reading it, but... Uh... Is that, is that what historical means? Well, the historical method sort of was the idea that something like Shakespeare is really important. But if we don't actually know what he's talking about in, say, The Tempest, when he's talking about, uh, you know, when he's talking about this man creature he found on this desert island, you know, the idea is that, well, it becomes more meaningful to us if we understand that oh yeah you know what just around the time that Shakespeare was writing there was a lot of people coming back from exploring the Caribbean islands and they were finding mm -hmm. indigenous people and they're having contacts and so at the time in the local imagination the idea of, of a you know a desert island was really fascinating to them and you know and the, then there was this also this idea of utopian fiction mm -hmm. that was going on at the time the idea that well if I could go to an island and set up a perfect society what would it look like mm -hmm. so a historical thing would say you know something like the tempest which is this tale of a shipwreck onto a desert island where he meets <clears throat> a sort of a half man half human creature and he tries to set up an ideal society it becomes more meaningful if we if we know that oh yeah, this was in the air at that time and that was in the air at this time and here's what people around Shakespeare were thinking about. So it, it lets us have more context for the for okay. the, for understanding. So the historical method is just filling in context right. to give us deeper references. But to me, like, <laughs> well, I just want to, a little bit earlier you were talking about how like as a, as a scholar you have to spend most of your time kind of talking about, talking from the perspectives of different yeah. people and different ideologies and stuff like that and I have so much trouble with that I yeah. I can almost I mean, I can really only just speak for myself I when I'm reading a book I read so I I almost entirely read it as just a converse like it's like the only thing I remember is the things that like I feel like I can do something with them like I'm, I'm reading and I'm just looking for tools to keep on working on the problems I'm trying to work on <laughs> so Oh man, I just lost where I was about to go. You you were just talking about history, about historical historical criticism, and about how difficult it is. Okay, to, yeah. Uh, so so when it comes to historical criticism and stuff like that, that's so boring to me because <laughs> no, like, I, the context, I agree. It's scholarship. You're right, and most people just want to read for the story. Well, it's like I don't, I don't want care to what Shakespeare's thinking. You know, I want the, I want to read a story about a about a desert island and a man beast. Right. Well. I mean, sort of, but I mean, like, so the context can be useful to me, but if that's where it ends, I'm just like, I don't care about that. But if that is some is another tool that I can use for actually chiseling away at what Shakespeare is really getting at, then I'm like, okay, yeah, I, I want I want the historical view because now I get to, I get to get even deeper into what this actually tells me about what's real. Yes. Sure, and I think. Those words you just said are the key words, which is the assumption that Shakespeare was getting at something. Right. And, and that's sort of what I guess what I mean. Like, yeah. That's what I think about symbolism, though, too, is like, so if, yes. if there's a character, I haven't, I don't know the, the, the story, the, the Tempest or whatever. Um, but if there's like, there's a, there's a foreigner, like, who, who's this character? What, what does he oh, well, do? I mean, the Tempest the is fantastic. Okay. The know? only Shakespeare I've read, and I really liked it, uh, was when I sat 
you know, I, I think I maybe read a, a couple random little bits here and there, but I, I the the Shakespeare I liked most that I read is just the even just the stupid. It's not stupid. It's incredible. The to be or not to be speech from Hamlet. What is it? Sure. Hamlet. Yeah, I I read that like twenty times. It brought me to tears. Oh, it's, the Tempest is so much more fun. Really? Oh yeah. Here's the story. Uh, a ruler of Milan is a powerful sorcerer. And he spends all of his time studying books of sorcery and neglecting his duties as a ruler. Okay. So his evil brother takes over the day-to-day -day administration of the city and ends up taking over the city. And he kicks this sorcerer, Prospero, out with his little daughter. And it's like, you know, um, it's like uh, Snow White where the huntsman is supposed to take Snow White out and kill her. Anyway, so instead of actually killing these people, they just shipwreck them. They just take them out, put them on a boat. Okay. A magic wind comes up and magic it takes them to this desert island. Okay. When they get there, they find that the island isn't inhabited, uninhabited. Instead, they find that the island has a, a water spirit. Sorry about that. Which is, you like my jaunty little ringtone? The island has a water spirit that's been imprisoned in a tree by a witch. Okay. And Prospero lets the water spirit out of the tree in exchange for being his slave. Okay. And the reason that that water spirit was imprisoned was because when the witch had come to the island, pregnant, she bore this man beast, half witch, half human, called Caliban, who is, you know, who is like a, a raging. Is this Oscar and, Wilde talks about Caliban too. Yeah, oh, everybody does. Yeah. Okay, because I I did I read that quote in your book and I was like I I literally was like I made a note I want to ask Ken who is Caliban. Yeah. So Caliban is this <laughs> savage man beast who's the who's the son of this witch who died. So what Prospero does when he gets there is he turns he frees Ariel and says no you're going to be my slave and then he uses Ariel's magic to enslave Caliban. So he's got two slaves on the island. Okay. And his daughter. And he kind of has set up this ideal society with him as a ruler. Well, doesn't his evil brother start sailing by? And Prospero now has been studying his magic. And he tells Ariel to go and make a storm and shipwreck everybody. Bring them here because he's going to get a little sweet revenge. Okay. So right? that's the Tempest. That that's the Tempest, okay. right? And then we have, you know, this, this idea of, of the various people on this ship are on this Prospero's island and he controls what they see hmm. because he's got this magic power and he's got Ariel who's able to. And so there's some lovely lines, like for example, the son of the son of the king who's shipwrecked, you know, Ariel splits them all up and, uh, and he makes, he makes the son wander around. Of course the son thinks his father's dead and everybody's dead. And he's moaning about this and Ariel messes with his head because he says, uh, what does he say? He says, full, fa full fathom five thy father lies, and those are pearls that were his eyes. Wait, and wait, wait, say that again. Break it down for me. Full fathom five. In other words, 15 feet under the ocean, your father lies, and those are pearls that were his eyes. And he has suffered a sea change into something rich and strange. Into something rich and strange. You know? So it's, you know, it's lovely. And anyway, so Prospero sets up this whole sort of torture scenario where he torments his people and then they come together and at the end of it he he destroys his books and he gives up his magic anyway it's it's but so it's it's very different than hamlet you can see right, it's, okay. it's a pure fantasy yeah that's awesome yeah, I, yeah. see i what what would you even 
is there an easy way to kind of get through some of Shakespeare's stories just to kind of, I mean, I, I, I could sit down and just read through all I'd the I'd start off with the most accessible, shortest movie versions. Yeah. And then maybe go on to a BBC Royal, you know, Royal yeah. Shakespeare Company production Actually, later. what what really got me, what <clears throat> made me even like, because I always heard the phrase, you know, to be or not to be, that is the question. It's like, I didn't even, that, that phrase has become so much... It's like it's jargon almost. It's like it's it like, is. It's just I, words. I don't, yeah. I don't know. I had no idea what it meant. I didn't know it was about death until I was like in university. Well, like, and then I, I was talking about death. You know the? Have you seen the BBC Sherlock series? Uh, yeah. The guy who plays uh, Moriarty. Yes, the hot priest. He <laughs> he does um, Andrew Scott. He, he does a reading of that whole soliloquy, and it like when I that was when I when I. When he read it, I was like, oh, my God. This yeah. is why everybody remembers this line. This is the it's question. it's about something. That, really, just that a... really is the question. Yeah, know, that's right. It's like, should I kill myself or am I going to go to hell if I do? You know, that's a big question. Yeah. But, I'll, I mean, to me, I even string it back into that that story in the Brothers Karamazov. It's like the 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 burden of trying to wrestle with how to live life is so great. Yeah. Especially within, I mean, like a sort of a, even even though we're, we're not postmodernist anymore, like that, the remnants of that, of that thinking are still, still hang around and weigh on you. It's just, just the, the overwhelming nature of like, I don't know how to pick through all of these stories. There's so many people are telling flawed stories about reality and I have access to all of them and they're all wrong. And I well, don't know how to evaluate. You can look at them more as they're all the old blind men and the elephant story, which is, you know, a hundred blind men put a, this right, is yeah, probably yeah, yeah. politically incorrect, but they all touch a different part of the elephant and they're right. all telling their story based on what they feel. Right. So it's not entirely like, I mean, right, but the, the if point, we presume the they're people of good faith, right. they're not and that's wrong. What, that's what we mean yeah. by wrong. Is, or, yeah. That's what you should mean by wrong. If you want to, you know, take anything useful from postmodernism is that, in any story about anything, like you said earlier, ignores 99% of the facts about the, th the thing to yeah. focus on the story of the thing. So anytime we have a perspective on the world, including our own experience and our everyday, just like I'm experiencing this conversation right now, even as I'm experiencing it, I'm, I'm not noticing what I'm seeing out of the corner of my eye in that mirror. I'm tuning out so many yes. frequencies in my ears. I'm ignoring so much data so i can try and get to a story but when especially when everybody's telling me all of this data is important yeah i get so overwhelmed and it's like i don't i don't know how to tell the story to my, i don't know how to figure out you need a grand inquisitor to tell you what to believe i know exactly <laughs> yeah. and it's like I, that that's sort of the it's this struggle with with re, and it's like you can see that struggle and that's why it upsets alyosha so much he's like i don't want to i don't want you to tell me that this is the wrong way to live I, I have so much security in this and like, and he's doing it right. Like he's such, he's like a good Christian boy and yeah. he's like, he's being respectful to all the priests and he's, he's really living it out. But it's like when he, when his brother tells him that's just another case of the self-obsessed in, in, in institution, he's like, no, don't, I don't, you can't say that. Yeah. That hurts too much. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's tricky because, you know, you put it this way, it's like, Almost nobody, I think, who's read the New Testament can believe that what Christ really wanted to do was to set up a little club for the most conservative, narrow-minded <laughs> people that they could all feel good about themselves by excluding other people. 
And yet, so often that seems it's what's what happened. And yet, it's still better than the alternative, which is to believe nothing. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's still, because generally speaking, no matter how flawed Christian churches are, they still try to do some good in the world, mm -hmm. which is probably more than you can say for a lot of the unchurched who don't actually have any institution which will collect up their drive to do good in the world and turn it into something good, you know? So it's to be a Christian or not to be a <laughs> well, Christian. Well, I, there's the rub. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that's a pretty poetic way of wrapping things up, maybe. Okay. <laughs> By good the way, stuff. that uh, short story is just called The Grand Inquisition, and it's... On its own, so you can read There it. is another, There's. it's like published separately? Yeah, you can just read it. Okay, yeah, well, I, there you I go. I had, had heard of it before, but it's a classic. Yeah. Okay, well, there you go. So. All right, good stuff. Thanks, Garrett. <laughs> well, that was interesting. If you enjoyed this conversation, consider sharing it with someone else you think might enjoy it. Even better, try to find someone you think might disagree with something here and take some time to listen to their perspective. Try to have a meaningful, good-faith conversation. I think if we can get better at this, we might actually change the world. Anyway, thanks for listening. I'll catch you next time. <laughs>